Welcome to your podcast, Leadership is Tricky, where we'll tackle various topics, challenges, and experiences as it relates to your investment in leadership. So let's design success together. Now your hosts. Hey everyone, Eric Bacaccia here with Leadership is Tricky. Uh, here today we're off-site and I'm here with the General Robert Brown. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic, Eric. Uh, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So uh, today we're off-site at an uh, Association of the United States Army uh, leadership off-site uh, where uh, General Brown is here talking about his vision for AUSA and kind of giving us our general direction of where we need to go. And I thought it'd be a great time to talk about leadership with you. Sounds good. Um, all right. So and call me Bob, by the way, and general retired, old retired guy. All right. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, as a former soldier, in my yeah. mind, you're still General Brown. But all right, Bob, uh, we'll do a little bit more informal yeah. then. Uh, yeah, so tell us a bit about yourself, you know, just your, your background, you know, yeah. growing up. What was that like? And, you know, where are you from? Yeah, no, uh, thanks, Eric. So, uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate. Uh, I had a, a kind of amazing childhood. I was born in Pennsylvania, but my father was a Marine. Uh, he was enlisted and then became an officer, fought in the Korean War, and he loved the Marines. Uh, but my two older brothers, uh, he was always gone. He never saw them. Uh, in those days, it was kind of like if, if the Marines wanted you to have a family, they'd issued you one, you right, know. Right. So he got out of the Marines after nine years and then went into business. And so we ended up, uh, I moved around more than a military kid, actually. My dad in business would go from, you know, a regional salesman to another region and work his way up eventually to be a vice president in a, in a major company, very successful. But so for me, I was very fortunate. I, I'd lived in uh, multiple places, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Colorado, California, back to Michigan, New Jersey. So uh, and, and moving a lot, I uh, became passionate about basketball and sports. I loved all sports, but then basketball, uh, uh, really started, I mean, from the time I was about four or five years old, I, I just fell in love with it. And uh, I would, you know, I, I loved the NBA at the time right. and, and watching uh, basketball players and uh, wanted to be a professional basketball player when I grew up and literally would play, uh, you know, probably 10, 12 hours a day in the summer. And I, uh, I had the opportunity just to have some tremendous coaches that taught me a lot. And so like in high school, I would, I would go in at 5.30 in the morning and the janitors would let me in the gym at my high school. And I had a strict, you know, two hour routine. I'd go through a uh, tough practice schedule. And anyway, all that paid off. And I was a pretty darn good player. Uh, but there was a guy I moved to Michigan my last uh, three years of high school. And at the time, there was this guy named Magic Ir uh, Johnson. Right. Irvin uh, Johnson, and you know, some folks may have heard of him. He was a senior in Michigan, same time I was. Uh, played against him, and uh, it was like amazing. You know, you think you're pretty good, but then you see him, and he was just unbelievable. He was like six nine point guard in high school. You know, an amazing player. Uh, so he got a full scholarship to Michigan State right. University for basketball. I got a full scholarship to University of Michigan. That, uh, Michigan State was interested in me, but I figured I'd be sitting the bench behind Magic Johnson. So I was going to go to University of Michigan uh, to play basketball. And that was kind of my goal to pay for college and then, again, maybe be in the NBA someday. Uh, and so I'm um, now you're talking to my you're pulling on my heartstrings. Yeah. Like big basketball guy. You know, I played basketball from eight years old to about yeah. seven. Yeah. Right. And then my knees just couldn't take it anymore. But yeah, I had uh, uh, issues with knees later, too, you know. Uh, but, I, you know, I loved it because to me, sports, it was uh, really a miniature life, you know, a failure, success, hard work. And I learned 
that hard work really pays off, you right. know, and working hard. And it's tough, but and you got to put in the effort, particularly in basketball. I think some other sports sometimes you're just gifted with natural speed or strength or whatever. But basketball, the skills require a lot of practice, as you obviously know, haven't played. So I was headed to Michigan, but then a guy named Coach Mike Shashevsky, Coach K. He was the head coach at West Point United States Military Academy at the time. He came to my house. They'd seen me play in a, a pretty big five-star basketball camp. I made the all-star team, did really well. So he was recruiting me, and I saw my – I didn't even know what West Point was. Right. Never thought of the military at all. Uh, but I saw my dad's eyes light up, who was a former Marine. For some reason, he hated Navy, Naval Academy, <laughs> right. and I had no desire to be on a ship. And uh, But – he was talking so passionately about West Point. I said, okay, my final visit, I'll go visit West Point, even though I'd already committed to Michigan. And uh, when I visited, I just fell in love with it. The, uh, you know, when I was at Michigan, the team didn't hang out together. It was, it was more like a business. And I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do at Michigan. Uh, they wanted me to take business class. They didn't want to go into business. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But when I got to West Point, and I, I remember there was uh, this poster and it had Eisenhower, Patton, MacArthur, uh, and it said at West Point, much of the history we teach was made by those we taught. Okay. And then the whole idea of selfless service. Uh, and I saw the team was really close and Coach K was an amazing leader. And so I was fully committed to go to West Point. Uh, but I only got in because I averaged 25 points a game in high school. <laughs> right. and, uh, Coach K had to use a blue chip to get me in. I was an academic risk getting in. Even though I was like a, a student, at, uh, my SATs weren't all that great. And uh, so I, I barely got in. And in fact, it's interesting, like my high school counselor, a couple of my teachers said, you can't go to West Point. You won't make it there. Uh, it's you're not a military type guy. It was kind of you know they said you're not a, those, those are like robots, and, you know military people and all this stuff. It was really interesting. And the whole coaching staff in Michigan came down to try to convince me not to go to West Point. And you're going to be in the army. And this was 1977 and right. after Vietnam. And I said, well, at least I'll have a job. And, you know, well, all this that could stuff. Have been you were averaging 25 points. Well, too. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, no doubt. No, Michigan wanted me to play basketball right. there. And uh, and uh, anyway, but. Uh, so long story short, I ended up at West Point to play basketball and, uh, and love, uh, you know, it was tough. It was very hard. The academics were really tough. It was an amazing leadership school, but. So I know at the time, Coach yeah. K wasn't who he was. That right. Known to be the day, right. right? The cha right. multiple championships. Right. Duke University. You right. Know, God. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, USA champion as yeah. well. Yeah. So, so what did he tell you that inspired you to want to go and be at West Point? Well, you know, at the time, I would have, I knew he was an amazing leader. I knew he was an inspirational, an amazing person, leader, coach. But I, if anybody would say he'll be the winningest coach of all time, I said, oh, come on. You know, right. I don't know. I mean, he's good, but how, you know, that, you're talking like John Wooden, good. That's, he's, he's a god, you know, like you. Right. And, but, but Coach K was amazing with, with the talent he had at West Point. Uh, my, my freshman year, we, we were literally really a great team. We, we beat a lot of amazing teams. We played a really tough competition. We, you know, we played um, you know, University of Virginia when Ralph Sampson was there. We played uh, St. John's, Seton Hall, Kansas State. I mean, a really tough schedule. And we lost in double overtime my freshman year to St. John's, or we'd have gone to the NCAAs when only uh, maybe 20-some teams went. 
and we went to the NIT, which was still a big thing then, but we didn't uh, get the answer. But anyway, so what I learned from Coach K, I would take hours. Right. We don't have enough time in the podcast, but the basic would be uh, how to form a team. He was just the greatest I've ever seen at forming a team, even when he later coached the Olympic team. And people said, oh, my God, why is he doing that? NBA stars, they're not going to listen. It's a college coach. Well, he was brilliant and pulled them together. In fact, I was honored. The first uh, people he had talked to the Olympic team was, you know, LeBron James, and right. Carmelo, Kobe Carmelo, Bryant, Carmelo, Carmelo, all these amazing, incredible uh, players. But he asked uh, me to speak to them with wounded warriors because he wanted them to understand selfless service and that they were playing more than basketball. They were representing their country. Right. And I brought in wounded warriors. Uh, Scotty Smiley lost his eyes to a suicide bomber in, in Mosul and several other wounded warriors uh, who are amazing uh, young men and uh, and told their stories and there wasn't a dry eye in the place and these guys honored them and it was amazing. It was the first meeting uh, they had and they would go on. If you remember when they were playing, they would salute when they made a great play. Uh, the the uh, the Olympic team they came up with that in honor of the wounded warriors. Right. It was really amazing. So Coach K is just an amazing team builder. Understands how to get the most out of people and how to have them really form an amazing team better than any human being I've ever seen. It's incredible. And so I learned so, I learned more leadership on the basketball court than anywhere else at West Point. And West Point's an amazing leadership school. I'm not trying to, you know, talk bad about it. It's an amazing leadership school. But I had the, the value of Coach K. Uh, three years, my senior year, he went to Duke. And uh, and we were all, uh, you know, really sad. Missed him and uh, uh, just amazing. And so, anyway, yeah, I've learned a ton and have used it my entire career uh, you know, in, in the Army, for sure. Right, so from Pennsylvania off to West Point to play yeah. basketball. Yeah. Uh, I saw you were a 1,000-point scorer. Yeah, well. that was one game, 1,000 points in one game. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get better as you get older, right? Right, right, right. right. And everybody, all of a sudden, you're way better. But, but I was a pretty good player. I, I'm really proud, like Coach K, it's, uh, you can see it. He said several times uh, on, on shows and stuff when he's been asked, he said, I was one of two players at West Point. I could have played for him at Duke, so that made me really proud, you know. And I was a pretty good shooter. I was a shooting guard at six five, and, and in those days I was pretty quick and I could jump. Uh, but it was interesting in those days playing for him. There was no shot clock, right. and so sometimes we'd play way better teams. Particularly like my junior year, we had lost a lot of talent, so we'd use a spread offense against a really good team, and and. Uh, uh, I was pretty good at that because if they put a tall guy on me, I'd drive by him. If right. they put a small guy, I'd shoot over him. Uh, and so uh, Coach was really uh, clever. But we'd have to – sometimes we'd have to pass the ball ten times before shooting. Right. And I, I see uh, his players today, they shoot kind of at will. I say, damn, why didn't I get that opportunity, Coach? You know? <laughs> yeah, you probably been 2,000 points. Yeah, I'd been 2,000 yeah. points scoring one yeah. game. It would have been – but uh, but I was uh, actually – you know, again, you get better with age. But I was – my senior year, I was averaging 23 points a game. Uh, one of the top in the country and 90-some percent free throws. Everything was going really well halfway through the season. I'd never missed a game, never had an injury, and I was driving down the lane. Uh, we are playing Niagara University, and I hit a wet spot, and my uh, patella tendon and kneecap snapped in half. Right. And half was up by my thigh, half was down below, and I'm laying there, and I'd never been injured. And I remember they came out, they took me away in an ambulance, and I was like, hey, Doc, can I be back for the second half, you know? Well, that was the end of my career, obviously. I was in a cast for six months, uh, wired together and everything. And, 
at the time, the, uh, the Knicks and the 76ers scouts were looking at me, even though I had a five-year commitment, they were talking about maybe possibility at the NBA, you know, and so it was kind of a crappy way to end, you know, when you get hurt and you end your career, you don't get any recognition, any awards, it's just kind of over. Right. So, um, the wind, right? yeah, and so I stayed at West Point. I thought I wanted to get out of the Army as soon as I could and be a coach then. And I stayed at West Point to rebuild my knee. The only way I could go, I wanted to go infantry because to me it was like the most, like being on a team of any branch. And I love being on a team and the most working with people and soldiers. And so uh, I stayed as a grad assistant in basketball. For, they started that for eight months as a second lieutenant at West Point. And I'm glad I did because I, I saw they had me working recruiting and all this. And I thought, man, I'm not sure I want to be a coach. I think I'll try the Army. Uh, where I can, you know, lead hundreds of soldiers and, um, and, and try that opportunity because coaching was kind of a, it's a strange profession. Yeah, so I know you, you just kind of hit on it. So yeah. why the Army? Well, you know, it's interesting. The, uh, I, again, I think people think those that, like I ended up staying in the Army 42 years when you count four years at West Point, right. 38 on active duty. And anybody would have said that to me when I was going in. I said, you're crazy, no way. But uh, what's interesting, it's the people are amazing in the Army, amazing people. And uh, the mission is incredible. And there's no satisfaction greater than selfless service to a cause greater than yourself. And you realize that in money isn't happiness. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to be broke and all that, but, right. but money, you know, some of the most screwed up people in our country have the most money, right? When you look at it, it's, you know, when you find a sense of purpose, and I found in the Army amazing, the greatest team in the world, I would call it, working together with a, with a, a, a purpose. But a lot of people think those folks in the Army always wanted to be in the Army, always knew they wanted to be in the Army. I didn't even know what the Army was. I had no idea. I came in to play basketball at West Point and ended up staying in 38 years. And they may have gotten the wrong Brown somehow. You know, Robert Brown, the goodness <laughs> of a common name, probably got the wrong Brown. It was probably supposed to be somebody else to make four-star general. But I'm pretty proud. I was the, uh, a friend of mine told me, I didn't even know it. I was the 216th four-star general in the history of the United States. The first was George Washington. The second was uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And I was the 216th, and I was like, oh, my God. When that friend told me that, I was like, I had no idea. You know, How do you know that? You Google it, you know. Uh, but very proud. And I loved the teams I worked with and the people, uh, just the most amazing people in the world. Uh, so incredible. I'll, I'll tell you, so uh, we do have a connection, right? So you spent some time at the uh, United States Army Europe. Yeah. Right, so uh, I served on that staff when you were there. Ah. Yeah, so I was the first private on the CG combo team for General wow. Meigs. Yeah. yeah, who was a really smart, amazing man. Amazing. May he rest in peace. He right. passed away recently. He's a wonderful leader. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So I spent uh, almost my entire Army career yeah. as a soldier at USRAF, wow. in the United States Army Europe. Wow. Um, yeah, so, so a lot of the folks that are here will yeah. be walking through. That's amazing as a private right. for a four-star general. That's amazing. I, I, yeah. So I got on the wrong bus. I was supposed to end up at Grafenbeer, <laughs> no. I would Germany. say you got on the right bus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was supposed yeah. to end up at Grafenbeer, Germany, end up in Heidelberg, Germany, yeah. and some Sergeant Major. That's not a bad hey, place to be. 
you know, what's when did, uh, did you stay after General Miggs left? Or? I, I, so I did. Um, I was there from 99 until 2005. Wow. Um, wow. And then I, I got out of the Army and got an opportunity to, to further my career yeah. as a GS, yeah. government civilian. Yeah, so, fantastic. Yeah, so things have, have, have worked yeah. out great for That's me. That's great. But, yeah, I just wanted to throw that little fun fact yeah. in there that yeah. you know, we did spend some, some yeah. time together. Yeah, no um, doubt. So um, as a leader, yeah. right? Because you, you know, you just mentioned that you made it to four-star general. Right. You know, what right. was your best experience? You know, that's that's a, a tough one. I would say the best to uh, in thirty-eight years, I had amazing experiences. But I would say what kept me in, I loved uh, getting a tough mission that would really, you know, that that again was was helping our nation and serving, uh, forming a team. Uh, to to do that tough mission, and I and the you know I I liked the army as a, a lieutenant, but I was fortunate enough to get command early as a lieutenant. And when I tasted company command, I loved it. I'm like, man, I want to do this again. I want to wait to be a battalion commander, and I love battalion command. It was incredible. And then brigade command was even better. And so the command position where you you form this team and you build a team. And I kind of, it was very fortunate. I was known as a, again, what I'd learned from Coach K, what I learned from amazing leaders when I was young. I had tremendous mentors. I, I was uh, known as a team builder and, uh, and I love building teams. And I think I spent more time than anybody else uh, doing leadership development events and building a team. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to have uh, a striker brigade when they first came out and I did the test and evaluation for that whole concept and had two and a half years to build the striker team with amazing leaders and then deploy them to combat in Mosul in 0405. So I got nearly four years in command of a striker brigade with amazing leaders. Folks like, so many leaders in that brigade went on, like uh, General Eric Carrillo's commanding CENTCOM. He was a battalion commander for me as a lieutenant colonel when I was a colonel. He's a four-star general. I had Todd McCaffrey retired, two-star general. Brad Becker retired, three-star general. I could go on on. D.A. Sims is now a three-star general. On and on and on. The Omar Jones is now a three-star general. Amazing leaders in this brigade. So I would say that was my greatest experience because we were together so long and we came into a very tough situation in combat where it was out of control. They didn't think they could have elections in Mosul. Uh, there were 300 indirect fire attacks a month. It was just a crazy situation. I had a huge area, an area division that had before at 101st under General Petraeus from the Syrian border to the uh, Turkish border to the Iranian border with the brigade. Uh, and uh, we ended up getting uh, ramped up to, from 5,000 to 12,000 soldiers in the brigade with you know, a battalion from the 82nd, battalion from the 25th, Apache battalion, different support. And, uh, and we ended up uh, winning Mosul back, defeating Al-Qaeda right. uh, in Mosul and, and having the first free elections. And it was, so it, it was amazing. So I'd say that, uh, you know, forming that team and what we went through, a tough fight there was, uh, was, was the greatest leadership experience for That's sure. One of the things that I talk about a lot, of, a lot of the times on the podcast and what I learned at Harvard was, you know, levels of disequilibrium, right, that yeah. we face throughout our lives. Yeah. Um, and combat being one of those things. You mentioned right. Mosul a lot right. and, and right. the time there is, you know, how do you lead folks out of what's called this danger area? Yeah. So they don't just, you know, fight, flee, or freeze and just, right. Stay, you know, right? And how do you pull them out of that into a learning zone, right? And right. We talked a little bit before the podcast about failure, yeah. Right, and that failure yeah. helps you learn, no doubt, especially in leadership. So, can you just talk a little bit about yeah. leading through crisis? And absolutely, uh, I, I would almost say, uh, you know, the most unlikely to have 
thought I would never ever have thought I would even be a general because over my career, I tell soldiers, it's interesting, uh, particularly young soldiers, you know, when you start talking to them and they're like, well, what does it take to be a general? And, you know, I said, obviously uh, uh, not, not good looks and, uh, and, and obviously uh, not being perfect. I mean, 12 times in 38 years, I was nearly relieved for doing for failures doing but not I'm not talking moral or ethical but you know trying to do the right thing and it didn't quite work right. whether it's somebody working for you but I, I learned uh, particularly today that empowerment is key and I was very empowering of leaders mission command before there was even mission command in 2008 and 2002 to 2005 I would implemented mission command because I realized um, you used to be able to have command and control and go all the way up the chain and all the way back and micromanage people. You couldn't do that anymore. The things move so fast. You know, that aren't, yeah. you know, military field. Yeah. They're listening what, to the mission podcast. command. What is mission command? Mission command is is empowering your leaders down to the lowest level, giving them the ability to make decisions without having to come to you. So it's total empowerment. Uh, you are responsible still for what failure and everything your success you give them credit for success You take the blame for the failures, right. but mission command is absolutely key. It's key today because the fog of war used to be not enough information And so really few pizza now the fog of war is too much information right. And you don't have time to go all the way up the chain of command and all the way back from private all the way up to Colonel whatever level and all the way back you've got to make the decisions uh, at the cutting edge of the battlefield and empower folks. Are they going to make mistakes? Of course. Uh, do you have to back them up when they make those mistakes? Of course. Again, not anything illegal or immoral, but trying to do the right thing. You want, uh, you want folks that are innovative. You want them, their lives depend on it. So the most innovative people in the world are at the cutting edge and the lowest level. So I, I learned that's absolutely key in leadership. Uh, but that failure, the only way you don't fail is if you're not doing anything. Right. Well, that's not real good. Leader. You, know, you got to do something. So you're going to fail if you're doing something. And then you take that failure. Failure is not a final destination or journey. You learn from it and you get better. And there were times, you know, backing up soldiers I had that failed. And I would have to go up and see, let's say when I was a lieutenant colonel, to go see a division commander, two-star general, and say, sir, relieve me. Don't relieve Captain so-and-so for what happened. And there'd, there'd be silence, and I'd think, oh boy, they're, uh, you know, he's going to relieve me. But then he said, no, no, let's talk about it, and then end up keeping the captain, keep his job, give him another chance, because they realized it wasn't anything intentional. You know, a failure uh, happens, and you learn from it. May, every time I failed, and uh, how you respond with the unit, you learn from it, you get better. And if you look, successful people, all successful people have failed. I mean, Abraham Lincoln's probably the greatest example. He has so many failures. It's unbelievable. You think, how could he be one of the greatest presidents we've ever had? But he learned from those failures, and it was amazing. And you can go throughout history. The failure makes you stronger if you handle it right. You grow from it, and it's absolutely key uh, to, to success. And I do worry because uh, this generation I see is more afraid of failure than any before because when I failed when I was young, and probably you too, Eric, although you're much younger than me, we could keep it fairly isolated when we fail, close friends and family. Now you fail, what happens? It's out on social media, it's everywhere. And what, what's human nature? People like to spread that bad. I guess it makes them feel better about themselves or whatever. Right, right. But they spread it. They tell, oh, look what happened to Brown. Oh, my God. You know, unbelievable. 
Uh, so it's tough. So I can see why they're afraid of failure because they're afraid. And then also it seems like things are so challenging today for young folks that they have to be so good to get, you know, everything's so competitive. Right. They're afraid if they fail, they're going to lose. But uh, you're going to fail if you're going to be successful. Uh, and you, if you don't fail, again, you're not doing enough or anything. Uh, so how you respond to it, how you recover is key. You can't let it keep you down. You have to learn from it and get stronger. And that's, that's what, what I learned over time of 12 uh, times almost relieved and then a couple of those major failures, but recovered and became a better unit and a better leader from it. I think uh, just to, like for example, when I failed one time, I realized you know, if I had a subordinate that something went wrong, let's say, you know, a tragic accident, they lost a soldier or they had something go wrong. You know, the lawyers would tell you, you can't go talk to that individual. And I'd say bullshit. You know, you've got to go see them. Yeah. Um, you've got to reach out when someone fails. The tendency is when I had one failure, nobody would talk to me. It's like I had a disease. None of the other. You really find out who your friends are when you fail. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, this happened to Coach K and his First few years, they wanted to fire him at Duke. They're like, who is this guy? He's, he failed, he struggled until he got his system in place. Uh, and it was interesting because I remember, you know, he was talking about one of his assistants when they lost a game terribly in his first couple of years. And the assistant said, boy, we need to forget about that game. And Coach K said, no, we need to never forget how we feel right now. And it's got to, we've got to learn from it and not feel this again and grow as, as an organization. And that's what happened. Very similar, uh, you know, when I had uh, failures, yeah, it's, it's terrible. You know, you, you're lower than can be. It's hard, but you learn from it and you grow from it. Uh, and everybody gets better if you do it right. Uh, and it's absolutely key to future success. So I would always go see those individuals that failed. And you can go see them and you can say, the sky is blue. Right. They appreciate that you're there. And when something happens, a tendency is people don't, they don't know what to say. They don't want to, oh, that person just failed. They, they, no, I don't want to bother. you got to bother. you got to be there uh, or you're going to miss an opportunity. Uh, they need your support when they yeah, fail I think too a lot. Um, yeah. In this culture of, you know, cancellation, right? Because when things seem to be too difficult, yeah, right? We just want it to go away, yeah. right? Um, I, I grew up in a, in a time where we celebrated failure. Right? Yeah. I had yeah. some great mentors, some great advocates and coaches that yeah. I was able to go to um, and explain, hey, this is this is how I feel. That's a great moment. way to explain it, celebrating failure. And it means you're doing something, you're moving forward, you're trying. That's kind of faded now today, again, because it, it's people are exposed so many they're afraid to, yeah. So that that you're exactly right. That was a. So I'm in IT, right? Yeah. Not combat yeah. arms, right? Where you know if we make a mistake, somebody could die. Right? Yeah. But I'm in a field of IT where if we don't do our job, yeah, somebody could not be able to make a decision. And right. Someone could perish. Right. 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 As a result, but when I talk to my right. team, even today, and everyone that's on my team that's listening right. can attest to this, is right. that I do celebrate failure. Yeah. Right. I that's real, key. I realize yeah. that. It's, it's on me to yeah. understand when people are reaching that danger right. area right. to help pull them back. But I tell right. them every day, challenge the status quo because right. it's not good enough. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I think that's a great way to describe it. I think the other thing that helps is I found over time uh, setting goals and teaching individuals how to set uh, realistic goals. Right is everybody will say they have goals, but they really don't. Oh, I want to be an NCO. I want to be a sergeant major. I want to be this. But they don't break it down and really know. So if you, you teach them how to set goals, uh, when you do fail, when you have goals, you bounce back quicker. Right. 
because you, you have that goal to pull you back and you find people without goals, if they fail, they can start to flounder and it gets worse and worse and they almost panic um, and not celebrating and learning from it. That's a, uh, but, so yeah. One of the things that I, I learned uh, from Jim O'Brien, he's one of my professors, he, yeah. he talked about ambitions versus yeah. aspirations, yeah. right? Yeah. So ambitions are those things that we want to do for ourselves right. and those aspirational things that we want to do for others. Yeah. So when, Folks come to me talking about, I want to be. Yeah. My first question to them is why. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, why is that important right. to you? Why right. do you want to do that? Right. And then the how to get after their ambition right. is what do you want to do over the next 90 right. days that it's attainable. Right. That it's realistic. Right. And over the next year. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we talk five to 10 years out. I got it. That's just yeah. too far out though. But um, I, I would say for anyone that's out there is to really look at, you know, what are your ambitions? Yeah. Then how do you get there? But use your coach mentors. For that, absolutely. And what are your aspirations? What do you want to achieve for others? And then I'd say another thing: successful people. You're absolutely right that if you you need mentors, mentors are key. And then you should mentor others. It's right. you know, it's your uh, legacy you're leaving. Uh, it's key to development. If you look at again, you can point out any key leader. I use uh, I President uh, Eisenhower as an example. He was mentored uh, as a major. He was going to get out, leave the army. He was mentored by a guy named General Fox Connor, uh, and uh, he mentored him and got him uh, back in love with the profession of arms and, and, and helped keep him in the military and mentored him, or there never would have been a General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. He would have got out. We wouldn't even know who, you wouldn't know who I'm talking about, but it was mentorship that got him there. He, in turn, mentored others. It's key. Uh, that, that, and so it's uh, very, very important to have that uh, assistance and help reach out and, and don't be afraid to... Asphalt. We all and, need it. And the last thing before we move on to yeah. the next segment is, if you are a mentee, go to your mentors. Yeah. And tell them what you want them to mentor you on. Exactly. Right? And yeah. then do the work. Exactly. Because you know, too often people think yeah. mentorship is just access. Oh, some magic. Uh, you know, they're gonna sprinkle dust on you, and right. you're good. No, you got to do the work. Yeah. And anything you do, Absolutely. hard work pays off. It's like your. Five yeah. thirty sessions. Exactly, in the, gym, right? the hard work pays off. I remember, you know, when I was graduating as all-time leading scorer, and you know, all these accolades, and you do so well. And the athletic director, he said, "Well, he should have been a good shooter. He was there. He he figured out I'd shot over a million shots coming in at five in the morning, and all the practice I did. He goes, he should be good. He worked for it, and right. it's really a good point, you know. And uh, so, you, you know, hard work pays off as a leader and life and things. That extra little things you do, extra studying." reading, extra, uh, working with a mentor, right. those all, all things make a huge difference. Absolutely. Really, no and doubt they might not it. say it today, right? They're yeah. just in gratification. Yeah. But as you, as you move on, you know, yeah. you start to mature and then it starts to click. Oh, no question. Know, and you become a better. Yeah, no question. Yep. All right. So from cadet. Yeah. Right. From Pennsylvania. Yeah. Through West Point. Yeah. Through your, you know, 40 year career. Yeah. Um, your general Brown. Right. Leaving the, leaving the service. Right. 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 And now you're the AUSA CEO. Yeah. Um, why? Uh, yeah, great question. I was, you know, I loved what I did. I loved, the, again, the military, the team, the people, uh, the sense of purpose is so key in life, your sense of purpose. Again, it's not money is going to make you happy. It's not, you know, material things. It's, it's, it's your sense of purpose that you're making a difference. And, and, uh, United States Army, you're making a difference every day. I guarantee it. And 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 mostly, you know, you spend way more time saving lives and giving people throughout the world a chance at freedom, 
true freedom than ever taking lives. Ever though, you know, that's unfortunately something you have to do sometimes because there's some evil people out there. Yeah. So very fortunate. So when I was uh, retiring, uh, as, and again, f finished up as commanding general, U.S. Army Pacific, uh, about 110,000 soldiers across the Pacific, half the Earth's surface. I was like, okay, uh, yes, I could go out, get out and do something to make money, but that's never been something. I wanted a sense of purpose. And so I felt incredibly honored that uh, Association of the United States Army approached me uh, to replace uh, General Retired Carter Ham, an amazing leader who uh, was, was the President and CEO of AUSA. What an honor. So to me, it was a no-brainer. Uh, it was that sense of purpose. And I actually can help more people now as President and CEO of Association of the United States Army, uh, perhaps than I was when I was active duty because you know, you're a little bit restricted when you have to ask a lawyer just about everything you do when you're serving today. And you got, a, you know, certain rules, you know, how the government is, rules and regulations. And now I'm not saying I do anything illegal or anything. No, but it's easier to help soldiers and families. And we do it every single day. Association of the United States Army, we have a credible purpose for 73 years. The association has been the Army's primary association, educating, informing, and connecting across the force, helping soldiers and families uh, with everything from becoming better leaders to uh, uh, help with uh, where, where they need help and with, with issues and being an advocate, educating Congress on what the Army does, educating the American public, connecting the Army better with the public, all these things that are just absolutely key. So what an honor to be in this position. So to me, it was absolutely, I was absolutely grateful to continue to serve essentially uh, and, and be able to to, to serve even, uh, you know, and uh, across the entire force and really enjoying it. I love it. And I think the second thing is to work with, we have nine regions, 122 chapters across the world in the United States and Europe, where we are now, the Pacific, and it's about 10,000 volunteers. And it's interesting. I thought most of them were uh, uh, retired soldiers, and, and a lot, 60% are, but 40% of those volunteers have never served in right. the Army. Uh, some served for a year or two, some served for you know, 30 years, 20 years, whatever. But a lot, 40%, never served at all, but they, they want to help. They respect the military, they love uh, what the military stands for, and they have pride, and they want us. And so working with those volunteers, again, the people, like in the Army, it's people you would choose to be your friends. They're great people. They're amazing people. They want to help. Every day they're helping soldiers and families. Most of the volunteers spend more time in their volunteer job at AUSA helping soldiers than they do in their full-time job. Right. And it's, I always tell them, I'm never going to tell your boss that. So, But it's amazing, and they're incredible people. So what an honor, and I feel very, very honored to, to be able to do that. So I would say someone is me. I'm, so I'm a VP for leader development yeah. for the the European region. Key here, job, yeah. Right? I look at it as an extension of my job. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It's not even so much something yeah. that I do supplemental to right. it. It's just like this just yeah. seamless transition. Of That's like, a good way to look at it. I know. think you're absolutely right. Because yeah. we do things that, you know, the Army wants to do a lot of things, but they, you know, there's restrictions and they only have so much money that you have to make sure the units are ready. That's expensive. You have to take care of the people. That's right. expensive. So, you know, AUSA can come in and do a lot for the Army to help educate in leadership. Uh, we come in and, and pull people together to help link the communities with the Army. 
Uh, we tell the story with something the Army isn't very good at. It's right. just not in our culture. We do a tough job. We move on to the next tough job. So people don't know what the Army does. The Army does amazing stuff every day and, and is key. You know, if you'd ask a normal person in the United States, you know, where's the Army? They'd say, oh, there are a couple places in the world. We're in 170 countries, the right. Army. And the reason there is uh, stability and peace in the United States is because we're in 170 countries. Right. And, you know, and look what the Army did. Uh, for Ukraine to help them before Russia did their terrible, illegal, uh, uh, criminal invasion of Ukraine and the brutality it's happening. Thank goodness the Army had worked with Ukraine and they were able to uh, do such an amazing job defending themselves and have a chance against uh, such, such terrible, uh, brutal uh, uh, by, by Russia. So, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a good way to look at extension of your current job and, uh, and very important, no doubt about yeah, it. I think it's uh, critical, too, is uh, when I do go back, I was just back in America with uh, a group of gentlemen uh, from my brother's bachelor party. And yeah. uh, we were talking right. about, you know, what I'm doing over here. Yeah. The things that I was telling them about of all of the modernization yeah. and how we're, you know, represent our national interests, how we're working with foreign partners yeah. and, and allies their eyes were getting bigger and yeah. bigger and bigger because yeah. they just don't understand. It's oh, it's point. incredible. We, we, need yeah. to, we need to tell our story. Yeah, we need right? to do a better job telling our story. There's no yeah. doubt about it. People are like, oh, look at that huge defense budget. Well, uh, it's it's pretty key. You've got some, unfortunately, it's a, it's a difficult time. Right. Authoritarian regimes like Russia attacking a free and independent country, uh, that's a terrible thing. It's brutal what's happening. And you've got... Uh, these authoritarian regimes that are more aggressive than they've ever been, like Chinese Communist Party, uh, and and so you know, you can't be naive and think, oh, you know, we're fine. Nobody's going to mess with the United States. No, you you have to have the strength to deter, right. and that where they they, they wouldn't uh, attack or do something stupid because they know they would be defeated. And it's it's key. The you know I believe in strength is the greatest deterrence. I think it was George Washington said the best way to prevent a war is to, you know, to maintain the peace is to prepare for war. Right. So you know they, they you know that you're ready and they wouldn't do that instead Absolutely. of, you know, being being weak whatever. Yeah, exactly. All so. right. So we're going to come up on time here. So okay. uh, I do this with every every guest, right? Yeah. Really it's your last thoughts, right? Yeah. So you know, what would you leave for the next generation? You know, I know one your daughter is a, a major Yeah. Uh, major promotable, really proud uh, she's yeah. been serving yeah. Actually, about 15, so, so what 16, would you leave her with? Well, uh, with her and for, for others, I'd say, uh, look, uh, don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do something. Uh, you know, again, I had lots of people tell me, there's no way, Brian, you can't make it in the military. You can't make it at West Point. You can't make it in the military. You're not, you know, you, you've got to believe in yourself, uh, set those goals, and don't sell yourself short. And work at it, and don't let failure disrupt you. You're going to fail. Uh, learn from it. And grow, and uh, and and so uh, I think it's uh, the sky is the limit as right. an individual, and particularly that one thing we're blessed in the United States. You know, if you you put in the work, you put in the effort, you're passionate about what you do, you're going to be unstoppable. And uh, if you're fortunate enough to be in the United States Army, you're on the greatest team in the world. Is it a perfect organization? No, of course not. But uh, when you look at uh, the the amazing. Uh, purpose and sense of, of selfless service to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, to give people a chance at freedom and to, in, in our nation, you know, are we perfect? No, but are we working towards a more perfect union? Are we working towards uh, where everyone has a chance 
Absolutely, and that's what you're a part of, and it's, uh, there's nothing better. So don't let anybody sell you short. Uh, get out there, and, and you, can, you can go as far as your, your dreams and your effort take you in our society. We're very fortunate. It's not like that in all places in the world. Right. Some places they tell you what you're going to be. You test to see what you can do. Um, you know, not for us. It's, uh, you, you can do it if you, you know, if you put in the effort and you earn it. So I think that's what I would leave them with. And, uh, and again, I feel very fortunate. The people I worked with, nothing I did, had amazing folks on the team. Uh, and I feel very fortunate to have been able to serve in the United States Army and and uh, serve, serve my country and to continue to do it here at the Association of the United States Army where we hope uh, folks are interested, get involved, because it makes a difference. Yeah, so uh, thank you for living your purpose, because uh, one, one of the statements I always say here is uh, live your purpose or you always yeah. live someone else's purpose. Yeah, um, so, that's a great, yeah, that's a great one, yeah. yeah thank you for your service <clears throat> and uh, thank you for your time today. Um, we'll, 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 we will follow up with another episode. So for those that are listening, we will follow up with another episode really focused on failure. Yeah. Really touch on that. No, that's that great. Out. Thanks. And, and Eric, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for volunteering at AUSA. Thanks for what you're doing. We don't thank our incredible professional uh, Department of the Army civilians enough. They are key. They're the continuity. You're, you're one of the keys to the success of the United States Army and our nation in keeping us free. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for your volunteer efforts in particular all you're doing for your, for young folks in leader development. That's, that's what it's all about. You're, uh, if we had, we could clone you, we'd be in great shape. We'd have a whole bunch of, um, uh, incredible leaders and I'm thankful for what you're doing and uh, for doing this podcast stuff and honored to have been a part. Yeah, Thanks, my Eric. pleasure. I appreciate it. All right. All right, team. So, uh, for those that are return listeners, I want to thank you for, uh, tuning into leadership is tricky on behalf of AUSA today. Um, and for those that, uh, are our first time listeners, thank you for, for listening in. Um, so we can be uh, reached on any major podcast platform. We're probably going to do about 10 episodes this season. Um, so uh, tune in and uh, thank you for your time.